0: Welcome to Rich Conversations. In today's episode, we welcome Matt Bones of the band Bone Lane. Now, I'm over in the Bone Lane studio quite a bit, and we record a lot. And so for this recording, we decided to do something a little different. And we sat in the dining room. I sat with Bones, and I just pulled books from their bookshelf And we had a conversation about different books that he possessed and also have read and just had a conversation around that. So it's very off the cuff, very spontaneous and very like, uh, I don't know, philosophical, intellectual, whatever it may be. Bones is always great when we're talking about that stuff. I always enjoy having conversations with him and engaging and listening to the the insights that he has. I love how Bones' brain kind of is wired and operates. I I really admire it. So, uh, So I thought, yeah, let's just pull some books from the bookshelf. This will be a lot of fun. And I hope you have a lot of fun listening to it. Before this episode, I recorded a little observations. That I've noticed. Now, I really enjoy the song Flowers by Miley Cyrus. I like Miley Cyrus. And I have some opinions about flowers. And it also leads into kind of generational observations in the psychology and vibrations of generations, and specifically Generation Z. And what I've noticed through music, specifically, in a cultural sense. So I hope you uh, enjoy that as well. Maybe you have some opinions too. Let me know. Hit me up on some messages. But this is a lot of fun, this episode. Excited to share it with you. Let's begin. Let's talk about flowers. Flowers. Aren't they so beautiful? Flowers. <laughs> the song by Miley Cyrus. That's, those are the flowers I want to talk about. Flowers is this song by Miley Cyrus, and I love it. I love Miley Cyrus, a uh, big fan of her work. But to me, what I've observed, or my opinion, is that Flowers is the biggest banger post-COVID. Now, let me kind of explain how I've derived this conclusion. Culture is created, mainly it comes from youth. Youth create culture. And today, young Americans are coming from Generation Z and they were born post-2000, post-millennium. And much of their experience, first, I love Gen Z. I think they have a lot of potential. Their experience comes from this digital world that we live in. Whereas millennials kind of cross this bridge between the analog and digital world, Generation Z is kind of the first generation born and raised and experience solely digital, right? So music reflects culture and a generation. And I personally don't listen to the radio. Uh, I listen on Spotify, and I'm usually sticking within my range. I don't really go out and discover new stuff, but I hear uh, with friends around me and also working at a bar and a restaurant, I hear what other people are experiencing. But if you look at, say, a top 40 radio station, or let's say the top songs in the US, this chart, right? You can get a sense of the vibration of a generation, right? The songs that are popular are reflective of young individuals. So Flowers is on there, it's this big hit. But if you go through what I've noticed, so I've noticed some patterns with Generation Z and um, attitudes and vibes and thoughts in a way. If you play the top 30 songs, 40 songs, the rhythm or beats are pretty I don't want to say flat but they're very like either chill or melancholy or they don't there's not too much range and there's kind of this like sadness or this kind of dark darker cloud um, with the music now I bartend on Friday nights and our demographic is typically it's kind of in that Gen Z range it's like Twenty, twenty-six 20, 26 and younger in a way. it's, It's like young professionals. And you know what people want to listen to when they want to have a good time? They don't listen to contemporary music. Often, there's almost like this nostalgia. And so I created this playlist called Bangers Are Us. And it's songs, just like, really upbeat songs from, say, the window of two thousand eight to like twenty fifteen, within this range, uh, some, you know, you'll have your Avicii, Calvin Harris, uh, Black Eyed Peas, Lady Gaga, Ariana Grande, uh, the list goes goes on. But it's just upbeat, fun, and I feel like music doesn't really reflect that tone right now in 2023 it seems to be kind of sad melancholy kind of depressive um, moody which again reflects culture which culture is reflective of younger generations and so if you again go through this list they're all kind of melancholy they're not exactly hopeful or inspiring or upbeat in a way and it kind of reflects my observations of a generation that has experienced life in the world through mainly a digital presence and then on top of that experiencing youth during COVID and kind of shutting off this uh, social um, release or vacuum or Environment. So you have a generation of young individuals experiencing kind of these, you know, all this information coming at them immediately, and the psychology is reflective of the digital age in a way. And I think it's really interesting. And Generation Z might be the first generation that doesn't have mainstream stars. And what I mean by that is because media and culture has become decentralized. So there's all these different... People go to all these different sources to find entertainment and news and things like that. that there's not this monolith culture that creates or stars kind of pop out from, right? Think of a movie star under the age of 25. Who is the biggest star that everyone would know across generations, right? You can't name too many. Um, I've posed this question to coworkers and friends. Zendaya is, is one that comes up. I believe Billie Eilish is the biggest star of Gen Z. Big fan of Billie Eilish. Super talented. And it's interesting how she came up. It's organically. That is kind of the idealized image of what is possible in the 21st century, right? You emerge and become successful on talent. I don't want to say itself, but talent shines through. If you put it out there, you imagine the best will rise to the top. Whereas before, you know, you have these, the Disneys and uh, just pop star kind of pipeline. And hers seems to be very organic and authentic. And people really respond to that. And she certainly has like a certain uh, image that seems to go along with this characteristic of Gen Z, a little sad and moody and depressive, but also there's this inner light that is there, but just needs to kind of be released or shown in a way. So when young individuals want to experience something, song, you know, music, that's more upbeat and more um, hopeful and fun, there seems to be this going back, this nostalgia for millennial music and 90s music. So it's interesting to observe. Now, these are just observations and notes that I've made, but um, I think the song Flowers, again, Flowers, is the first kind of, the words aren't necessarily upbeat and hopeful, but they're more reflective of the generation, right? I can buy myself flowers. I can write my name in the sand. It's saying I can be alone and still love myself and be myself. I don't necessarily need someone, which seems to be a a message of the 21st century that's Of course on the internet so much and prevalent in culture but there's this the beat of it is kind of inspiring and fun and catchy and if you go through the top songs on spotify not many other songs have that feel like this feel and this feel is reflective of the psychology of younger generations so that's something that's just on my mind. Flowers. The world is more beautiful with flowers. I feel like I, feel like I have this addiction to like have my notebook out mm. everywhere, on me, at all times. Because yeah. at any given moment, something could be said where it's just like, absolutely true I need to write this down yeah but then I'm also recording it on three cameras <laughs> yeah, I guess. And audio and I'm gonna edit it yeah maybe the notebook comes later yeah all right so we're in your dining room right now mm-hmm. and uh,
1: dining have- room is kind of an extravagant phrase it's our kitchen slash yeah <laughs> it makes me sound like I live in a mansion if I have a separate dining room it's just it's we have two rooms in our house and we're in one of them <laughs> Well, piggybacking off of
0: our last conversation, uh, you know, you got the, the, the red. And yeah, the gray, these are yeah. almost rich colors. Well, red and then and you're burgundy. like blending in with that
1: one. That's true. Oh yeah. no.
0: I thought I would switch it up a little bit, you know? Uh, I love, by the way, you guys have this,
1: this mural. Mm-hmm. Is this a mural? It's a mosaic. Right? I don't think either of those. It's a, did you, you took a photo of it on the way in, right? Mm-hmm. Um... I take so a photo for, of it every time I'm here. Really?
0: Yeah. Why? Because <laughs> it's it like... Again, we, we talked about this, right? Moment photography that I'm into? That's true. That's true, yeah. I, I feel like I... I was telling another friend this who's like really analytical. Mm-hmm. I feel like I keep track of things visually. So if there's a date or something that happened... I can go back in my photos and see exactly what day it was because I know like, I can reference it, oh, I was in Albany Park, Bone Lane Studio, Sunflower Mm -hmm. Mosaic, and I can just reference things. It's like a visual reference for myself.
1: But doesn't that deteriorate if it's just the same visual reference over and over again? But if you go through
0: it, Mm -hmm. then it's like if you go through the photos and you you just have this stream of photos, then that shows up sporadically. So you can see kind of the frequency
1: it's, it's, like it's like a, like a storyboard a of frequency? your life, kind of. Yeah. That's interesting. It's kind of, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how it is a little bit. So, uh-huh. yeah, just to fill people in on what we're talking, because, again, we're talking about things that are off-camera like we did last time. Um, but it's everybody, well, a lot of people will have seen this if they listen to the podcast. It's the mural from the Lacrimosa video shoot. Yeah. That, um, I mean, it's. I think it's pretty clear what happened in that music video, but we laid out a grid of, of paint canvases, and then our buddy Ken Ferguson... Yeah, love Ken. Um, yeah, who is, I think we know through you, or through okay. the station, I guess. Yeah. Whatever, same shit. Um, painted a giant sunflower across, what am I looking at, 30 canvases. <coughs> uh, and so, yeah, that's the painting we kind of didn't, well, we didn't have plans for it after that, so now it just, it's up in our house. But it fits, like, perfectly. Mm-hmm. It's like, every
0: time I come here, and I go down those stairs, there's, like... <coughs> It's like I know. I know. It's like this is we're mm-hmm. going down into the studio.
1: In yeah, Sam keeps talking about replacing it with something.
0: Really? What do you? I don't know pre- what though.
1: That's the big question. I think it's. I mean, it's yeah. just been up for years now, so I think it's just a like a novel. He would just like something new, but it's fucking. We're like not gonna st- find st- something that big that's st- cool, cheap art is expensive yeah. as fuck. Yeah. Good art. Yeah. Unless we want like a poster, <laughs> like this. <laughs> <stuff> <laughs> do you like? Thing?
0: Do you like the? Uh, Remember the posters in college? They would have like people come on campuses and then just sell these like posters for five dollars. And you you have like all your college posters like the Beatles,
1: the Pink Floyd, yeah, the, like all the. They were all like stoner posters. <laughs> Feel like and it was the same with uh. Every twenty year old has tapestries. Has those like thin? They almost look like curtain material, but they kind of look like Persian rugs. Do you know what I'm talking about? They're just like I patterned so. pieces yeah, of yeah, cloth yeah. that you like people like hang above their bed or something. That's just a mattress so. on the floor because they're in college and yeah, don't have their shit together.
0: <laughs> so I was curious. So we're drinking coffee right now,
1: mm-hmm. and uh, you do French press. Uh, yeah, I'm not really a coffee. I don't. I'm not really a coffee snob. Like I just want yeah. caffeinated bean water, basically. Right. Um, but we also, like, so for myself, I just do pour over. Okay. Do you know what that is? Yeah. So it's just for was, anybody who doesn't know, it's over. just a funnel with a yeah filter in it. It's like the simplest way to make coffee. You yeah. take boiling water, you put it on coffee beans. Yeah. You get coffee. So for that's perfect for one person. Mm-hmm. But then it's like the reason I have used the French press is because that's harder to do with two people, and so the French press just works.
0: Yeah. Feels more artisan. It, it is just nice. Just like your... It is definitely better. You know, like the, mush, uh, what you want, the appliance where you plug it in and... Yeah.
1: <laughs> Anyways. Like a Rube Goldberg machine? Is that what you're talking about? I do you know what those are? No, there's like
0: automatic uh, Coffee Mate ones that you buy for 15 bucks at Target. I think we got one of those
1: laying around. but Yeah, that, everybody's got one laying around. Those feel gross. Yeah. They're always like, they're nobody they're ever really cleans plasticky. the pot, they just yeah. rinse it out, and so it's got like two years of fucking coffee residue on the inside, it's disgusting.
0: Uh, Alright, so I wanted to go through some of these books that we have. Yeah. like Because every time, right before I leave, I kind of just like, mm-hmm. look. I feel like this is something I do with everybody though, like if I go, to, go over to someone's place, I just, uh, I just love seeing how they express themselves. Or, like, not just in furniture and and colors and things like that, but also
1: intellectually with the books, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, you do get kind of a sample of somebody's personality. Or you were saying before Mike's heated up that, like, I was warning you, like, hey, if we start pulling books off that shelf, there's a really good chance we're going to hit a couple that I have not read at all. And you were like, yeah, but I think the books that you purchase are almost as telling. As the ones that you yeah. read as far as like what you're interested in and what your taste is.
0: Well, did we talk about this uh last time? So we got new carpeting in mm-hmm. our place. And then so my new roommate, I moved all my books into that room so they could put carpeting in my room, and I realized I have way too many books. Like just Yeah. It like half of my room is just nothing, and then the other half is just like like uh you know, like vines taking over old houses. It's mm-hmm. so like books just taking over the floor. Mm-hmm. And so when I'll go in the room without the books, I'm like, it feels so good. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should get rid of some of these. And the yeah. summer before, I got three totes worth of books. And I just took them up to Wisconsin, put them in the barn. And then I went to Target right after this. After this revelation, I bought three new totes. Mm-hmm. It filled them up right away. Yep. But now I have the books. So I went through all of them. And determine, am I going to read this in the next year? Mm-hmm. And if if it's, it's pretty obvious whether or not I'm going to do that. So I sure. just put them away. Yeah. So then now I just have kind of what I would, you know, read and mm-hmm. available. Um, but look, why don't we take take a little gander at some All of right. these? All right, yeah,
1: go for it. Start pulling shit. So right
0: here we have boss. <laughs> <laughs> that,
1: that is Sammy's ex-girlfriend's book.
0: okay see what i love about i do love
1: tina fey though and i have read that so i'm not i'm not trying to shirk responsibility it's just a funny pick
0: i think there's a story with the acquisition of each book Mm -hmm. you know uh and that to me well physical books too that's why i i keep physical books or i read physical books Mm -hmm. tell me about this one all right i used to see it like all the time on target shelves it's probably still still there yeah Every show.
1: I mean, this is a pretty popular book. The I I don't know. I like Tina Fey, what can I say? It's a guilty pleasure of mine. 30 Rock was like a big um, I'd call it like a depression comfort show. Like mm. I was pretty seriously depressed for quite a while in my life and that was like it's just it's like a it's like comfort food almost. Yeah. I don't know if you do that if you just like consume the same material over and over again sometimes. Like I must have seen 30 Rock 6 times all the way through. Because it takes no mental, you know, you don't have to think at all. I feel like everybody
0: has a show like that. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, like The Office is popular,
1: Seinfeld, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I'm trying to think. Sopranos is a big one for me. Mad Men is a similar thing. Don't those Um, stimulate your mind a little bit more? I don't know. I never. Yeah, and I'm not. Yeah, but once you've seen them once. Like, I think that's okay. part of the comfort of coming back to something is just, like, you know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, like, those are all high-quality shows, but it's kind of, like, fucking McDonald's in that way, where, like, if you go to one in Topeka or you go to one in Chicago, like, you're getting the same thing. And so it's just, like, yeah. I don't know. I think people end up in, I mean, I am I know I'm guilty of this, of finding themselves in loops like that, where it's, like, they feel like they should branch out more. Yeah. But it's just, it's a risk to start a new show, you know, like... I might just waste my whole night. And usually by the time you're turning on the TV, you're like tired. You don't want to fucking deal with anything. No.
0: You know what happens
1: to me? This
0: is, uh, at least for the last year, Mm -hmm. something that I'm aware about is, something I like doing too is eating while I'm watching. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the end of the night. I want to like wind down. It will literally take me an hour to pick something. So I spend an entire hour going through... Netflix, YouTube, uh, Disney Plus. Yeah. And I'm just, I just don't feel like anything. Mm -hmm.
1: And then I'm like, okay, time to go to bed. And I didn't even watch (laughs) anything. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I'll just watch, I watch a lot of the same comedy specials over and over again. Okay. Like I've seen all the Tom Segura shit fucking at least five times. So that's kind of what happened there is um, this is, this is, Years like we were, we didn't live here. This was um, Sammy's ex girlfriend from like when he was doing his master's program, I think, Uh, was just trying to be nice and like bond with me. Basically, I think was what was going on. She knew I liked Thirty Rock, and so she lent me this book. Okay, but I had no interest in reading it. (laughs) I was like, I mean, you know, I just don't give a shit. But I felt, I felt obligated then to read it so that we could like have a conversation about it. Yeah, and then we never did, and they broke up, and now we just have this book. Did you, so you did read it? I did read it.
0: I don't really remember it. Is there like one big thing you would remember from it? No. <laughs> no, not at <laughs> all. All right, enough said. <laughs> okay. This
1: one. Oh, good Lord. A Brief History of Time. Yeah, so this is Stephen a theme. Stephen Hawking. The theme of my bookshelf, I would say, so first of all, I'm a typical dude. All of this shit is nonfiction. I've got like fucking four fiction books up there. <laughs> um, and a big theme of my bookshelf is things that I don't understand. Like, I just have science books that are way fucking above my head. There's like a book on quantum mechanics up there. I have no idea. I'm never going to be able to make heads or tails of that. It's just, I find It's cool it. when people come over and they see it. They're like, oh, this is a smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> they're all for show. <laughs> Um, so you did not read this one? That I did. That one I read when I was young, though. I was, like, maybe 14 or something like that. Um, and that one was, so my dad and I have a similar interest in stuff like that. Like, I would say pop science. Yeah, um, something
0: digestible that.
1: Yeah, and, you know, there's the, it's like kind of the Neil deGrasse Tyson thing where right. his job is to make to- people who don't, understand science at all like feel like bit. they vaguely get it yeah where they give you like an animation of a, a wormhole and then like yeah. you're looking at a clock through a wormhole and you're like oh i think i understand <laughs> relativity <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of that shit on my shelf it's like there's some of that there's carl sagan up there as well uh, is it pale blue dot i think i have pale blue dot yeah i can't remember what's on I've that shelf that and what's around uh actually it's right by your left hip is cosmos Oh okay, Cosmos. Cosmos. This I did read and I don't remember it. This we're gonna keep running into this problem is I either I didn't read it or I don't remember it. <laughs> this is nonfiction too, I think, right?
0: Oh, I see that that quantum mechanics one. Gosh, I just love when I see I take my book covers off.
1: Yeah. For hardcover, it's be- yeah, that's that's a gorgeously hardcover? bound book. Oh, yeah, man, look how sexy this is. it's really nice.
0: Quantum mechanics,
1: yeah, but I get a kick out of the um sort of poetry of science. Like, people, the thing that's beautiful about Carl Sagan is that he's poetic about it. Um, like the whole pale blue dot metaphor, it's not a metaphor, it's just uh, he's pointing out that all of every war that's ever been fought, every tragedy that's ever happened has all happened on this tiny little speck which can be a little bit depressing but he presents it is in that a way the, that's the
0: pale blue dot one or is that cosmos
1: that's uh i think it's the introduction to pale blue dot but that's where the title comes from. i think about he, that all the time he has this little like kind of tone poem about that yeah
0: yeah like it's so, we're so insignificant
1: yeah <laughs> uh... i think i disagree though because, oh, so. si- well, size is not a good proxy for how important something is. That's,
0: that's a great thing, too.
1: Like, if the... As far as we know, we're the only conscious things in the universe, that's right, true. on this planet. Yeah. And so, fuck everything else. It's all dust and stupid shit. Just because it's big doesn't mean it's so more we important. we are significant. Very significant. That's my, that would be my take.
0: Until we do find Until out. we die. <laughs> <and> we're, <still laughs> so
1: we're very fleetingly significant. <laughs> but, yeah, I wouldn't make the same argument that... Every well.
0: I think I gave this book to you guys.
1: Yeah, I don't think I ever read that. All right, let's talk about it. What? This is. Remind me what the premise is. Okay, so this is probably
0: my. Probably one of my top five favorite books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have a couple that you bring up a lot, and that's definitely one of them. Yeah. Chuck Losterman, he's this like pop culture writer, but he uses like pop culture and. Like, a really fun writing style to talk about, like, very, like, <laughs> like interesting things. What so, else? So, he's done a couple famous ones, right? Uh, sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. Right. Um, I think that's the one I was thinking Racing Captivity was his second to last one. He did, like, a anthropological commentary on the 90s. That mm-hmm. was his most recent one. Just talking about the 90s and, like, culture and politics and the world, what it was kind of like, uh, compared to today.
1: Um, many, he has, he's, a lot. Yeah. He's one of those people whose names you just see on the subway or something. He's
0: like a weird, kind of a weird guy. He's, he lives in like Portland, but he's like really into
1: sports and music. Very into the, music. He wasn't the mu- music reviewer, was he? I think he did mu- music reviews. Yeah. I think I might be thinking of Chuck Palahniuk too, who did. Okay, Fight Club is his famous one, but I think one of these motherfuckers this one, is a music reviewer. This one
0: is my absolute favorite of his. Mm-hmm. It's thinking about the present as if it were the past. Yeah. So he presents all these scenarios of like say rock music. Mm-hmm. When we look at how will it be thought of 500 years from now? Where when we think of classical music, we think of like three names. The general public can only name like three people. Yeah. But during the time, yeah, there's all these different people. Mm -hmm. So throughout time, like singular things become more remembered. So, so it's like, will rock music be, he takes the Beatles off the table because it's too obvious of a choice. Okay. So then he goes, uh, that's a weird way to start is to take the right (laughs) (laughs) answer, but it's only right to us right now. Yeah. Fair enough. Right. Um, will rock music be remembered as like the lyrics, it had to be meaningful and it didn't really matter about the voice, so like Bob Dylan, Mm -hmm. or will rock music be remembered more like Elvis Presley, big hair, sex, loud. Mm, That's interesting. Kind of like that, but uh, it helps me think about in our contemporary life and interacting with people, people seem so certain and so sure about, you know, we're the most advanced we've ever been. Like we've solved so many different things, but really we're going to look, be looked upon and judged just like we do with all these other people that lived years ago. And, uh, it helps me just be, I would say more open-minded and just like more, uh,
1: exploratory in, experiences in life I guess it's interesting because you were asking like uh, is rock and roll going to be remembered as like this big sexy bombastic thing and it's it's weird how just time sort of sterilizes people to a certain yeah. extent like um like even Elvis who's not that long ago in the grand scheme of things it's, it's weird to think is. of how that like um you know, shaking his hips was considered yeah. way beyond the pale and like threw women into sexual frenzy. And a lot of right. that's just PR, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, that's the case with old poets too. Like, you know, some of that shit was racy for Victorian times. But because it's because the language sounds old to us, we just think of them as dusty old fucks. Yeah. And that's inevitably going to happen with us, us as well. The only reason it yeah. sounds old and dusty is because it is old. Yeah, it's not because there's anything in particular about the language that's like puritanical or whatever, although I'm sure in some cases that is the case. But like in 80 years, we're all going to sound, you know, the way that we make fun of people in like 20s movies, like, see, (laughs) (laughs) we're all going to sound ridiculous (laughs) to people 80 years from now. Have you ever heard of the Lindy effect? No, what's that?
0: So I actually, so I met this guy, this was during COVID. He lived in Paris. And then he moved back to Chicago. He's originally from Chicago. And his like girlfriend is from Europe. But to renew his papers, he had to come back to Chicago. So he's living here, and he would come into the bar and then we would just chat. And he's a technology lawyer. And he he's got like a pretty pretty heavy uh Twitter following. And he focuses on the Lindy effect and like living by the Lindy effect, where something This is a very strange man. I like this. (laughs) So something non-biological, its future is equivalent to its past. So if a book has been in print for 40 years, it is likely it will be in print for another 40 years. A book that's only been in print for two years, it's less likely it will be beyond two years from now. Mm -hmm. Same thing with restaurants. You can apply it to anything. Like Lincoln Station, where I work, it's Mm -hmm. coming up on 25 years of being in business. So it's... More likely, like
1: it's far should more be likely to, than a place that's been open for three months to be still open in twenty years.
0: Right. So, so if we've been open for twenty-five years, there's a good chance we'll be open for the next twenty-five years. Sure. But if a restaurant is only open for five years, beyond the next five years, it's really a toss-up. Mm-hmm. So everything is equivalent, kind of, to its past,
1: non-biological. Interesting. So he like, he'll. Yeah, that doesn't, he doesn't work does for biology. If you've been alive for eighty years, it's highly likely that you will alive <laughs> for another eighty years. Doesn't work with. Them.
0: But then he'll take a look at, uh, you know, just trends and fads mm-hmm. today, and like he drinks, like only beer and wine because that's like what they've always been drinking. Okay. Like uh, it's like time tested. Everything is time
1: tested. Interesting. <laughs> That feels like it's true of all booze, though. It's like whiskey's not fucking going anywhere. But how, how long has whiskey been around? Forever.
0: Has it forever?
1: Uh, yeah, like George Washington had a distillery. That's not forever. It's, That's only like 1700s Okay, but it's, it's 300 years. It's pretty good. Yeah. I guess, okay, if you're so talking then, about... You're right. Beer is these, probably... Like, beer is older than yeah. distilled liquors. That's true that is a weird way <laughs> that is a, i'm not insulting the man
0: actually i don't even know it's if an unusual it that way, but way to like make talk that about that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. or like now you know how today everything is uh you know there's all there's always pills and cures for mm-hmm. everything yeah and he he like kind of if a pill has only been out for x amount of time like i don't mm-hmm. know anyways yeah i think that's a reasonably good heuristic. And he just, like, lives by that and centers all of his, like, mm-hmm. how he lives his life that way. Mm-hmm. But I like that book, for sure. Okay. Mm. Some good ones.
1: I hope so. <laughs> all right. Dharma bums. I've never seen that book in my life. (laughs) We're doing great. Jack Jack Kerouac. Should we just go to another one? (laughs) We can talk about Jack Kerouac if you want. I've read a couple of his things.
0: What do you you think of On the Road? I'm debating that's on my shelf. I have like 68 books on my shelf Mm -hmm. that I need to like go through that I've, I've deemed the most useful to me in the next year
1: jack kerouac the best thing that i can not the best thing that i can say about that book um, one highly useful thing i can say about that book is it's very easy read okay. so it's not um, it's low risk i would say like you're gonna get through it quickly it's not it's pleasant to read um the thing there's a thing that happens with anybody who's that popular like I use this I I might have even said something like this on the podcast before with like I can't get into Jimi Hendrix really yeah and I know I'm the I know I'm wrong yeah I know Jimi Hendrix is awesome I just can't get into it and the reason is that everybody who played guitar after Jimi Hendrix sounds like Jimi Hendrix and so Uh now when you go back to Jimi Hendrix it sounds kind of cliched or there's a similar thing with like um, certain movie tropes like Indiana Jones getting chased by the big rock coming yeah. down the mountain. Like, that's just a stock. yeah, Or, like, the door about to close on him and then he grabs his hat from underneath it. Like, now that's just a stock trope in movies. yeah, And it makes those movies seem cheesy when, in fact, they're the movies that came up. Actually, that's not true. It was all based on, like, Dime Store novels. But um, I think that can happen. And that happened with Jack Kerouac, is that he was so influential that everybody copied his style. And it feels just like kind of silly and sophomoric now to look back at it. It feels like, I don't know, just like kind of hippie bullshit. Yeah. I have more bad news. I've never read that either. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> this is The
0: Alchemist. One of my favorite books. Probably like a top 15 book of mine. Really? Yeah. Paulo Coelho. He's a Brazilian writer. Uh, yeah, this just a beautiful story.
1: Nice. I thought
0: he wrote in Spanish. It's about a boy, boy who, uh, he lives in Morocco, mm-hmm. and um, he goes to search for this treasure, or maybe Spain, and then he goes to Morocco, something like that, and uh, he's looking for this treasure, but the treasure all along is inside of him.
1: Spoiler alert. Yeah, dude sounds amazing. <laughs> That's a good way to tell you the story. Of, that's like the entire point of the book, but also <laughs> doesn't actually spoil anything. Mm. That was... Which one's that? What do we got over there? Who
0: Owns the Future?
1: Oh, that shit is wild. Let's talk about that. This is Who Owns the Future? Um, man, this is going to be really fucking hard to explain. So Jaron Lanier, who's the guy who wrote that, is a really interesting character... In and of himself, he's—I think you could kind of best describe him as a technologist, like he's just mm. a guy who thinks about shit now. Okay, um, but he's one of the people who pioneered virtual reality, so he's considered like the godfather of virtual reality. Um, so way early, you know, like big fucking headset yeah. the size of a TV you had to plug into the wall, um, and basically just like grid lines. But that's a trippy experience okay. if you've never experienced something like that in, and you're in 1992 or something like so that. So this is early 90s? Um, I don't know when the <laughs> book was written. We could easily find out. But that's kind of when he started toying around with virtual reality stuff. Um, and now just writes... Just a very interesting dude. He's, he's this enormous guy. And he's like... Um, he just has very zen vibes. And so he's really... Positive about technology um, so he's a techno just like optimist. A very, I would say more or less okay yeah, I don't think he's naive in his optimism. he's not like everything's going to be great no matter yeah. what we do. This book is basically a criticism of the internet um, or it's it's about half the book is a description of a problem um, it's 2013. Which is something that he calls siren servers, which are basically, he's he's describing enormous companies like Facebook or, I was going to say Instagram, but they're the same thing now. Um, and what those companies do is basically they harvest valuable information from people without paying them and make a killing off of it, right? So Facebook isn't really generating content. What yeah. it's doing is it's basically trawling with a big fishnet for content yeah, um, and then piggybacking off of the fact that you create interesting things, right? Not you specifically, but you, the user, create interesting things. So it doesn't have to produce anything. All it does is slap an ad on it and you're not compensated for that at all. Um, and so part of the book is, it's kind of like an interesting almost critique of technology or capitalism or whatever. It's just pointing out, um, that things are being subsumed, like it's part of it has to do with accumulation. Almost it's not a book about economics, but it it reminds me of kind of wealth inequality arguments where it's like more and more money ends up in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And it's it's similar in that with technology, you can do a lot less with a fewer with a smaller number of people. So like one analogy that he draws is. He compares Polaroid and Instagram, which is a little bit of an odd, like they're not the same thing, but in a way they sort of function similarly, right? Polaroid was the big, yeah, whatever, image company in say, the eight, well, for a long time up until basically like the end of the 90s. Um, and then Instagram and Polaroid was a massive company and employed thousands of people and was basically annihilated by instagram which at the time was run by like 35 motherfuckers yeah you know and so it's like part of it um is about how automation and just the scope of technology allows that to happen Mm. um such that basically more and more people are being taken advantage of uh to the benefit of fewer and fewer people and then Hmm. So the int- I'm doing a pretty cursory job of, like, there's a lot more to his criticism. That's just kind of one aspect that I remember in particular. Oh. Um, but then the second half of the book is suggesting basically an alternative structure for the internet. It's basically like, scrap this whole thing, we got to start over. <laughs> okay. um, What's the alternative? So the alternative is a riff on a project that's called Xanadu. Which I forget the dude's name. Um, give me a second if I can find it. Yeah, there's a guy named Ted Nelson who was one of the really influential in the early technology, early internet. And we're talk when I say early, I mean like the '70s, like just okay. one of the first people who was thinking about how all this shit should work. Um, and there's a lot of things, especially because pretty much everybody, <clears throat> you know, over under 45 has grown up pretty substantially with the internet at this point, that you just take the way that it's designed for granted. Mm -hmm. Um, One, but just because it is a certain way doesn't mean that it necessarily was always going to be a certain way or should always be a certain way. So um, one thing that probably people don't think about a lot is why does there ever have to be a copy of the same information? Like, for instance, I might have. Hmm. Let's. I'm just going to use uh, an arbitrary song here. So, Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith, right? Great song. Just because people know that song. <laughs> you know what? It is a good song. That's a good drunk song. When you go to the bar and you're too hammered and they put that on, you're like, I don't want to close my. Anyway, um, let's say you watch Armageddon on Netflix Uh uh, and that song exists on Spotify, right? So there's a file somewhere on Spotify's server that is that song. And then in the movie, right, there's another copy of that file Mm -hmm. in the movie file itself. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So one thing he points out is because of the internet, because you always have access to a server, it's kind of, that's sort of redundant. Like there's no reason that you ever need to have two copies of a file ever. What you, what could have happened is I, as an artist could put a song out, you put that file on the internet, right? And then if somebody wants to make a movie with that file, they just kind of link to it, Um Sorry, a lot of this has to do with like weird data structures and it's hard not to get into the weeds on it. But um, the point he's making is that in if you were to kind of restructure the internet, it would restructure the economy of the internet such that like if you're making a film and you want to use a piece of music, you wouldn't necessarily even have to reach out to that person and ask, like, hey, can I use this? Um, because that piece of film would be pointing at your original piece that you uploaded, it would be traceable that they had used that and if that movie makes any money it could automatically funnel some of those proceeds to you does that kind of make sense yeah so to come back to facebook if a million people let's i'm just going to pick random kind of round numbers if a million people put one photo on instagram and instagram makes a billion dollars Mm arguably all of those people are owed a thousand dollars or maybe a little less than that because instagram takes a cut or something like that and all of this if we were better about tracking the origins of where things came from if things were structured in his view more sensically to begin with all of this could happen automatically Um, isn't that what cryptos so nfts had sort of a similar thing yeah um and the first of all i'm not like a big crypto guy but something that i think I am really interested in cryptocurrency and not as like an investment thing. Like people are like, Bitcoin's a scammer. I don't give a shit if it makes money or not. The technology is really interesting because money is a technology. The contracts. Mm -hmm. The technology and the contracts is like what it's all about. Self-executing contracts. That's a crazy idea. But like one of the things that happened with NFTs is they implemented some of this stuff. Yeah. So again, depending on how they're built, because you can, it's basically programmable art, so you can make it do whatever you want. But one of the ways that those a lot of those worked was that an artist's let's I make an NFT and I sell it to you for two thousand dollars, and you go out three years later and the price is appreciated and now it's worth two million dollars, you sell it again, but automatically because the blockchain remembers where it's been and the where block, it came from. Yeah, that's the name. But, it yeah. can automatically pay me. Yeah. Which is not the case with physical art, right? If I draw a photo yeah. If I'm Picasso and I draw something on a napkin, and 30 years later it's worth three million dollars, this happened with his Dove of Peace drawing. By the way, he just like drew it for a kid in a museum, and now it's worth like some absurd amount of money. Wow! He can't reap the benefits of that, yeah. right? So he, now he's been alienated from his own work, production, yeah. sort of. Um, but yeah, so the book—it's pretty. It's a little bit. You know, he doesn't get into like exactly the details of how this would work. Um, but there's just kind of interesting ideas in it like that where like if we restructured this entire thing, we could make it so that your value wasn't constantly being stolen by people who are, um, alienating really is the word for it, which comes out of Marxism, but, um, cutting you off from your own value, kind of, you know, pulling the wool over your eyes and saying, well,
0: I went out with a, a data lawyer recently. And, uh, she was saying very similar things. We we really agreed upon like data is such a huge issue. Companies mm-hmm. can make so much profit off of data. Like so, the amount of money to like invest in creating this is so minute, so little in the value that they get in return. Mm-hmm. But it's like no one. And we're talking uh, especially in America. No one in America, their top priorities throughout their day and their life is not their data on Facebook or Instagram or right. name any other um, app on your phone. Mm-hmm. There's just so little care, but it's so like collectively valuable right. that it, it just
1: continues that wealth and equality. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and because you don't think about your data is not very valuable in itself piece by piece. Yeah. Like I've maybe given away 15 cents worth of data today just through app usage and stuff yeah. like that. But, um, over time, ideally I would be the person reaping the benefits of that as kind of the book. Is one yeah. of the, one of the points that the book makes. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we've used, we used music or whatever, but you could do this with any type of data. Like if, yeah, facebook uses statistics about you in order to make money there's no reason that that couldn't be trackable that you couldn't say well facebook pulled all of these users data we know who they are we could funnel some of the proceeds to them and i wouldn't be surprised if you saw stuff um like if anybody's aware of web3 that's like people are trying to basically do this like kind yeah. of remake the next version of the internet and a lot of it is based on not necessarily this book in particular but like some of the same source kind material. Of ideas and concepts um yeah. yeah and so the guy the guy that the whole again the second half of the book is about solutions but it's also largely an homage to this dude named ted ted nelson who had this pro- project that he never really got off the ground called xanadu which was basically a competitor the internet starting out and the internet just got off the ground faster because they found better ways to invest and stuff okay and this dude has been kind of puttering away on this project for like 50 years and just really hasn't released anything usable you know and so it's like he's kind of imagining well what if this had been operationalized okay and there's lots of unintuitive ideas like um on the internet most links are only one way so if like you see a somebody talks about the fucking pacific garbage patch or something in an article yeah. you might there might be a hyperlink that goes to the wikipedia page but you can't then get from the wikipedia page back to the news article that you're reading mm-hmm. why like there's no reason that hyperlinks couldn't be multi-directional and you shouldn't be able to see on wikipedia like okay what articles are linking to this and work your way backwards mm-hmm. or why We're used to scrolling pages, right? Which basically it works kind of the way that a book does. Like it's a page, has boundaries. Why, that's weird. Why would, it makes sense that a page has boundaries because it's a physical object. But like, why do we accept the fact that we can only have text in this tiny column? Why can't web pages go in every direction infinitely? Why do we have them laid out? And it's, it's, it's a scroll essentially is what it yeah. is. It's this thousands of years old way of reading things. And there's nothing wrong with it, but there's also nothing saying that that's the way all data has to be published on the internet is basically like it's a physical book, which is weird. So these are just a couple of things I remember. Yeah. Obviously there's a whole book full of shit, um, but that's the title wow. who owns the future is saying like, it's kind of power to the people, right? We should all own our own information and be compensated yeah. for such. So, yeah, that book blew my mind, and I recommend it to everybody, and I can't get anybody to read it, so read it. Well, Take it with you if you want. I have another book like that. E.M. Um, e. Forrester wrote a book called The Machine Stops. Have I forced you to listen to me talk about that before? I don't think so. Uh, so that one, I think it was written in 1902, and it sort of predicts the internet.
0: Wait, so what is it? What is it called?
1: It's called The Machine Stops, Okay. Which and I'm obsessed with it. Um, but it's a little like it reminds me of like Jules Verne, who kind of predicted what submarines would be like before submarines ever existed. Uh, yeah. And it's essentially he imagines a world in which everybody is basically living in kind of underground pods mm-hmm. and taking it, you know, everything is provided for them by the machine, which is just this giant human superstructure that they're surrounded by. Okay. And it provides them with food and stuff. But most importantly, it provides them with entertainment. So people have. I forget what he calls them—dishes or saucers or something like that—but it's basically a tablet, and they can watch lectures and things like that. And you're just like, okay. So in 1902, this dude predicted the internet. Yeah. And especially living through COVID, that's how it felt—is you felt like you're living in like a little isolated pod underground. Did you read just, this in COVID or? No, I read it years before. But okay. when COVID came around, I mean, it's remarkable enough yeah. without COVID. It's still—it's just a wild story, and it's—it's it's not like the greatest piece of literature ever. It's some. A lot of science fiction is good not because the storyline is compelling, but just because the ideas are cool. Yeah, this is the case with like the Time Machine by H. G. Wells. Yeah, it's not a great story. It's just got some cool ideas, like oh, what if you went in the future and I love that the, humanity had diverged into two different races? PBS had this uh, the show called Wishbone back in the day, where it's this
0: dog, and they're like living their lives, and then he plays characters throughout like classic literature and this like alternate yeah i remember him wearing the sherlock hat yeah so it's his dog and he's interacting with all these people and he has like lovers and you know whatever no one can tell that he's the dog (laughs) (laughs) so it's his dog that they dress up and he's like acted uh (laughs) that's awesome and but i remember the one the time machine one uh was always a fun episode hell
1: yeah I remember the commercials for that. I don't think I ever watched the show, but I remember, story, the dog was adorable. <laughs> Hell yeah! All right, all right. Herodotus? Herodotus, yeah.
0: I like. I keep kind of hearing his name, or he gets brought up on. I listen to like history podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's
1: is he considered like the first historian or something? More or less. Um, so obviously, he's not the first person to ever write history. Um, because, you know, if you look, like, at ancient Egypt, you'll go see... Yeah. Sorry, this is not going to stand up on its own. It's Well, we can't read it from there anyway, but it's Herodotus' histories. Um, the... So you'll go see, on fucking walls in Egypt, they'll be like... And then Tutankhamun killed everybody from X... Yeah country that doesn't exist anymore because tutankham killed all of them um so, actually was a pretty m- insignificant pharaoh yeah that's right he's like 12 time. when he died right 19 all right honestly. we'll go with ramses the third then because yeah ramses <laughs> um but like all the, a lot of that stuff is basically bragging yeah it's um, like pr and so herodotus was is kind of considered the first like the the godfather of history as we think about history which is like trying to chronicle things from sort of a detached perspective yeah um but it's also the case that it's really it's not modern at all it's very something that's kind of interesting about early like when i say early history i mean like this shit or um even like homer is it's it's clear that ancient people were less concerned about whether something was, like, objectively true. Um, you know, like, old myths, the Iliad, the yeah. Bible, or whatever, people aren't, like, worried so much about sourcing. Yeah. You know, did this actually fucking happen the way that it says? it's They were much more comfortable, I think, with the blend of mythology and, like, hard data, whereas modern history is obviously very, like, we need to be able to prove everything. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a lot more mythically things. Like he... Um, there's a lot of at least exaggerations and things. Like the whole... Mm-hmm. Like the Battle of Thermopylae. Like it's not actually the case that it was 300 Greeks. It was like 300 Spartans and also a couple thousand other guys who weren't from Sparta or whatever. You know, it's like yeah. things like that just kind of get lost because it's... The point of the history isn't to document things the way that a modern historian does, it's like, it's part mythology and like storytelling and mm. almost nationalism in a way where it's like, yeah. check out how dope the Greeks are. Um, so he was Greek or Roman? Greek. Okay. Um, but yeah, and this, I mean, it's pretty long. Like, so a lot of the, most of the things that could be labeled history that happened before him are So are, are these snippets. just stories? Like, like history stories? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so this and let's see, these, book one, book two, book three, book four, these are not very helpful. Um, Yeah, a lot of them, it's mostly like war histories, things like that, or this and uh, Plutarch has a book called Lives, I don't know if you've read that, but that's like kind of the, the first biography where it talks about remarkable people early philosophers, stuff like that, or emperors, or whoever. It's been forever since I picked it up, but kind of a similar deal.
0: The last... uh, One of the books I got in New York last time was The Philosophy of History, and it was like this... got it at this like obscure bookstore in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. It was like this big, cool cover, written in like the, I don't know, 50s or
1: something. Yeah. Well, another thing, I think it's hard to wrap your head around how drastic a change the rediscovery of a lot of that classical stuff during the renaissance was because there was this thrust in the ancient world so like herodotus was doing relatively systematic history stuff and people were thinking very systematically um in philosophy and then a lot of that shit not all of it but a lot of that shit just got lost in the dark ages um Mm -hmm. And so, when people basically, what happened is people rediscovered Herodotus around the time of the Renaissance, and it it kind of reminded them, oh, we should maybe be thinking about his, history
0: um, like slightly we, more objectively we, than yeah. than we have been. Because that in the Renaissance, then then that's when like science exploration is happening as far as the scientific process. And mm-hmm. So, like, what if we apply that to history? Right. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, maybe. Okay, let's do a couple more. I don't think, have you read this one? Consciousness Explained?
1: No, I tried, it's too heavy.
0: (laughs) Okay. Infinite Jest, did you read that? No. That seems like
1: a life, life work. It's just intimidating. Yeah. yeah it is. I'm curious about this one. <laughs> that uh, John Burker used to live there kind of gave it to us as a joke. Cultivating Taoist. male sexual energy.
0: Yeah. Taoist. Through, I think,
1: chakras and shit.
0: Of love.
1: That's kind of what the art looks like.
0: Cultivating meal. The
1: art also looks like a uterus, I'm sure that was intentional. Kind of oh. hmm. this
0: one. The social animal?
1: No idea. David Brooks? Sorry, some of these are either things that John left behind or Sammy's. Okay. Sure, that sounds kind of richy. Have you read this one? The Golden Ratio? Yeah. There's not a lot to talk about. It's basically just like there's this number that shows up in nature all the time In the end. It's one of those books that doesn't need to be 200 pages long, but it is.
0: do you think of uh did you read this one welcome yeah. to the monkey house yeah okay why do you like Vonnegut right. this is welcome to the monkey house Kurt Vonnegut I read uh sirens of titan I think
1: mm-hmm.
0: I just I don't know if I like his writing style
1: is that a novel yeah um, I th- what's the fucking Slaughterhouse 5? Is, is yeah, big one, I think. I like is, so I the one. one that we're looking at right now, Welcome to the Monkey House, is a collection of short stories, and I think he's okay. better in short story form than he is oh, in really? novel form. Like, I think Cat's Cradle is a collection of short stories too, but Slaughterhouse 5 is a novel. What was the one you just mentioned, Sirens of Titan? Um, I haven't read that. I remember Slaughterhouse-Five being just fucking very weird, which isn't a bad thing necessarily. Um, But Vonnegut is... So we were just talking about this with that E.M. Forrester shit that a lot of science fiction is just, like, it's all premise. You know what I mean? Oh, imagine a civilization in space where the Amish run everything. Cool idea. But then they kind of don't flesh out the story in a satisfying way. Yeah. Vonnegut, I think, is good at both. He's really good at concept, and he's very good at making it sort of touching and human. Mm. Um, so, for instance, there's a story in here. I think it's called Epicac, which is the name of a basically a computer that writes poetry. which feels very timely with all the chat GPT shit. And it's short. I'm looking at it. It's like eight pages, something like that. But it's just, it's touching. You like fall in love with this fucking computer by the end of the thing, which is crazy. Wait, you fall in, you say what? Say yeah, again? you, so the, the, I can't really remember the details, but it's a computer that, um, I think what it is, is the, protagonist is in love with a girl and he enlists this computer to write poems on his behalf to her okay and um you just become very convinced it's like if you've seen have you seen um ex machina no okay i'm not i'm not spoiling anything it's that movie is about uh basically a female robot that the male character falls in love with and you do too as the audience Um, But it's unclear whether it's actually conscious, you know, or there's a similar thing. What's that movie? Her, I think. Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with his phone, Mm -hmm. basically because it's an advanced AI that can like talk to him and it's Scarlett Johansson. So she's charming to begin with. But it's kind of a similar thing where like you develop a bit of an emotional relationship with this robot, essentially in eight pages. And so that's what I mean, is that it's hmm. it's really well done, whereas, like, the H.G. Wells stuff, he's just like, oh, this cool world we built, and then we'll explore a little, but at the end of the day, there's not really, like, a human story in it. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of, like, a weird thought experiment. Um, Vonnegut's pretty good at connecting you to his characters emotionally and, like, making sure that there is a narrative thread there. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah. So of all these... Uh like classic
0: literature writers, you have Hemingway up there, you have Kerouac, you have uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, you got Vonnegut, mm-hmm. Who, who's like your favorite writer of, say, the 20th century?
1: Oh, fuck, that's a good question. Um, I'll toss out a couple names, but just because we touched on this in a couple other things, I think like a big thread in my reading is that I'm a sucker for like dystopian shit, Okay. like 1984. One of my favorite books ever is Clockwork Orange. I couldn't, um, I
0: couldn't get into the writing style, though. Really?
1: Yeah. How far did you get? Ten pages. <laughs> okay, cool. I was going to say, because it, it fucks with you for the first couple pages. Like the, okay. first, the first two pages are nonsense, intentionally. Um, so it weeds out the people who are... It's definitely playing some kind of cruel mental trick on you, but it's it's really what it's introducing you to the world. It's throwing you in the deep end of the world um, and then it mellows out a little bit. So the way that Clockwork Orange opens is so Clockwork Orange is a dystopian novel. It's set in England, but it was written in mid-century, maybe 50s, 60s, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so it, it imagined a world in which the Soviet Union became much more influential uh, and i can't remember if that it actually like took over england or was just in in vogue you know like very okay. fashionable in england so um what one of the kind of interesting devices in that story is that all of the characters speak in like an english slash russian patois where they they use a bunch of borrowed words from russian um yeah. which and they just beat you over the head with it for the yeah. first couple pages because it is I mean, it's it's a cool idea, uh, but they just totally throw you in the deep end. And so everything that the guy says in the first page, it's written from the perspective, like there's a narrator um, who is this like horrible, horrible, violent rapist person. Mm -hmm. Um, And he describes like his crimes essentially in great detail, but all in this like weird made up slang. Okay. And so the first, yeah, the first couple yeah. pages are just like complete nonsense. And then it, it chills out okay. a little bit and it lets you, it starts to repeat words in a way that you start to memorize. Okay. Um, so just as an example, it'll say like, I punched him in his rot until it was bloody and rot is just Russian for mouth. Um, okay. And it'll, it'll use that word in a couple different instances so that you can pick up on it via context. And so it is, it's shock treatment at the beginning. Um huh, but it's it's really effective. it's very cool in like a really bizarre world that he builds. George Orwell? What's yeah, so I think Orwell? I mean Orwell might be the answer to that question I I went on a I had a big Orwell kick and he has really interesting he was a journalist for a long time um and has he was. There's kind of a, a, class of writers that were, um, came up just post-war, um, with just kind of the carnage of World War Two, and trying to like find their footing. It's, not, it's sort of similar to like the Lost Generation after World War One. It's just like what the fuck is going on, basically. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And there's kind of an analogous group after World War Two that Orwell was a part of, um, and it was. A lot of them were very committed socialists and then you watch them see what watch them realize what a horror show the Soviet Union was in the 70s as like more information started to come out and people started to hear about gulags mm-hmm. and stuff and you see people grapple with this so that's what a lot of 1984 is about like he was I, and I think was always a socialist it's not like he ever gave up on that um, but it is interesting to watch as the century progresses people start to be like hmm that experiment that we were all pretty excited about like it was very cool to be a communist in the forties in America. Like everybody who was cool was a communist. Um and then that became like a weird, kind of unpalatable position by the eighties and like by the time Reagan rolls around, like you fucking cannot be a communist in the United States or you're considered yeah. a traitor immediately. And probably both of those, you know, yeah. are leaning way too far out on one end or the other. Um but that's what's so interesting about both nineteen eighty four and Animal Farm, which of course there's two most famous novels yeah. is it's like him just grappling with that how much of um the tragedy that happened in the soviet union was due to stalin how much could have been prevented how much was just an outgrowth of whatever the war and general miserable condition of humanity <laughs> uh, but he also has really interesting he was a journalist for a long time so he's got really interesting travel writing from burma uh, and just has is has like well mm-hmm. okay and has a very interesting biography and is like I don't want to say underrated because obviously 1984 is one of the most famous books of all time, but I think a lot of his stuff kind of flies under the radar and is just a really wow. fascinating person.
0: All right. We're going to do one more.
1: Cool.
0: I definitely, I definitely have given you like three of these books. I feel like uh, oh yeah the obstacle the way i probably gave
1: oh yeah yeah that's the one that's uh it's like marcus aurelius but modernized right
0: yeah you I know, give marcus
1: aurelius <laughs> cool uh i've read both of those so
0: and war of art yeah i feel like i gave all three
1: i think you did before. Any of those, no pressure.
0: so are these ones you're reading those
1: are let me see this one is in Spanish and I was translating it as a project for myself but it's kind of an interesting yeah, story I did
0: that with the alchemist I bought it in also Spanish mm-hmm. so that I could just like yeah take me an hour to get through one page.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think I got like a third of the way through this it's pretty good um This one's interesting. So I have a do you know anything about
0: um You were yeah, you got a history of Chile right here. Yeah, I
1: think we've talked I have a weird obsession with Chile and uh Pinochet. So do you know anything about that period? elaborate uh, more. I know um I know of it for sure. Yeah, so basically in the seventies there was a um Chile had A socialist government that was then overthrown by the general of the military, Pinochet, with help from the CIA. So it's this really bizarre... uh, Yeah, I guess bizarre is a good word. It's just this really strange moment in South American history where they basically had a military dictatorship Mm -hmm. take over. And it was kind of the counterpart to, like, you see mostly... Communist revolutions happening in places like Nicaragua or Cuba or whatever and it was like this was just the other side of the coin Yeah, where it's like you get to see some countries go like way hard left and some go way hard right and Pinochet was kind of the Like classic example of just like this is a military dictatorship now and this book La Aventura de Miguel Litin clandestino in Chile So it's called um, It's usually just called clandestine in Chile in English, but it's okay, uh, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez I don't think so. So he wrote "A Hundred Years of Solitude" and um, "Life in the Time of Cholera." Like he's he's probably the most he's a Chilean revered. Uh, he, I, f- no, he's not Chilean. He's um, fuck. I don't remember. Wrote in Spanish. Might be Spanish. Um, but this book, so like I said, it's called clandestine in Chile and it's about, there's a film director named Miguel Lietin who was kind of a leftist activist in Chile. And so after Pinochet took over, Pinochet killed a bunch of dissidents and exiled the rest basically. Um, and so this film director was one of them. So he got kicked out of the country and had to go live in Europe, but then, uh, he decided to make a documentary about Chile under Pinochet so he snuck back into the country under disguise and so the whole book is basically it's like his memoir he told this story to Gabriel Garcia Marquez who then kind of I don't want to say punched it up like I'm not saying he was lying but he made it into literature because he's an amazing author Um, so he like recounts this director's story of re-infiltrating Chile essentially and he had to go through this whole crazy process of, like, prosthetics, and he had to, um, basically, he had to not look anything like himself. Yeah. And he had to pretend to be something, somebody, completely different. So he was like kind of a, like, a relatively blue-collar dude who was just like kind of man on the street journalist documentarian. Um, and he adopted this persona as I think an Uruguayan, like, fabric merchant or something like that. So he had to put on this whole like aristocratic air. And make himself look completely different. So, like, he plucked out a bunch of his hair so that he was bald. He, like, got rid of his beard. He started wearing glasses, but he also had to develop an Uruguayan accent. So, there's months and months of preparation just to even set foot in the country wow. because the stakes are so high yeah. because he's, like, fairly well known to begin with and, the, you know, could be killed if he's found out. Um, so, and so a lot of it's just, like, interesting logistical things about, like, how did they arrange for multiple film crews? To show up in this country. See, this
0: seems like your 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 part, like, how did they how did they so how did they yeah, all figure they that out? Do that shit, yeah. <laughs> Logistically.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but so like they got all these permits to you know, they basically lied about what they were there for. They just said, Hey, we're filming a they had three film teams and they all had a different backstory or like cover story. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the film crews didn't even know why they were there. They had to lie to everybody except basically three people. Um but they got Permission to shoot like inside La Moneda, which is basically the White House of Chile Um, And you know, they basically sent these three teams all over the country just to document from the inside because it was a Pretty repressive regime and so there wasn't much freedom of the press and so basically they were trying to just get Images from Pinochet's Chile out to the world. Okay to show people what it was like Wow, so fucking yeah, just a completely wild-ass story Jane. Mm-hmm. that's wild
0: well this has been uh, it's been fun Checking on yeah this books. was cool I feel yeah. like we,
1: we end up talking about books a lot or like some yeah. of our relationship revolves around books like last time we yeah. we like went to go see a show but we would met up at a bookstore ahead of time and just like <laughs> wandered around the aisles talking yeah. about shit yeah and like you said I think we've got five or six books that you gave us Yeah. some, some of more. which I have read <laughs> yeah yeah it's always it's always good
0: i always enjoy it there's a. Uh, I i remember that one time it was back in february 2020. this is like a week before new york had their first like covid mm-hmm. case and you did a show at berlin and then we we all went out afterwards in like lower east side manhattan and so we're at this place and that day i was at the guggenheim museum mm-hmm. and it was exploring the idea of, like, country, like, urban and rural and the future. And, like, there's this animatronic Stalin that would go around. <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious, but also, like, really freaky. Yeah. And we were talking about it. And, like, that whole night, we were just, like, sitting sitting at the bar, like, by ourselves, just talking
1: like we're right now. Yeah. Uh, Fuck one. yeah, dude. Animatronic <laughs> Stalin. That's amazing. I need to get one of those.
0: Yeah.